One of the most remarkable stories in the Bible, the one that's told at great length actually, is the story of Joseph. He was born into a family where he had 10 older brothers and one younger brother. And for various reasons, Joseph turned out to be his father's favorite child. And his dad made no effort to hide it, actually gave him uh, a beautiful coat, outer garment, which we often refer to as his coat of many colors. So he had that uh, distinction in the family, and you can imagine how that affected his brothers. Joseph also had some dreams, and he decided that it'd be a good thing to tell his brothers and his parents about how in the dreams, his brothers had all bowed down to him and his mom and dad had bowed down to him. And that was not necessarily something that pleased them. And uh, it seems that on some occasions, at least, um, his dad would send Joseph out to check on how the older brothers were doing and they're taking care of the herds that the family had. And at least on one occasion, Joseph gave a report about them that was not a good report. On another occasion, his father sent him out. He went to where his brothers were tending the herds. And as he was approaching, they saw him coming. After all, you know, he had the coat. And they said, here comes that dreamer. Let's take care of him once and for all. Let's kill him. And so when he arrived, they seized him and were planning to kill him, but Somewhat cooler heads prevailed, and they said, ah, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in a pit with no food and no water. And so they did. Now, the oldest brother was planning to sneak around when the others weren't looking and get Joseph out and send him home. But while he was away, along came a caravan of traders on their way to Egypt. And the other brother said, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so they did. And so Joseph was sold to this caravan going off to Egypt. He was trafficked, to use a modern name for an ancient reality. And so sold by his brothers, he became a slave. When he got to Egypt, they sold him to a man named Potiphar, who was a prominent official in Egypt. He was the head of the Pharaoh's bodyguard. And so, Jesus, uh, so Joseph worked there in that household, did his best, and God was with him. God blessed everything Joseph did. And it became apparent to Potiphar. And so he entrusted Joseph with more and more responsibility until finally Joseph essentially was running the household. But Mrs. Potiphar took a liking to Joseph. He was handsome, he was well-built. And so on multiple occasions, she tried to get him to sleep with her and he steadfastly refused. Until finally one day when no one was in the house but just the two of them, she grabbed him by his clothing and said, you know, sleep with me. And he refused. He said, I can't do this. Your husband trusts me. I can't do this great evil in the sight of God. And so he pulled away. She held onto his, his cloak and he just shucked out of it and away he went. Well, soon when the others came back, she reported that he had tried to rape her and her Husband Potiphar was angry, furious, had Joseph thrown into the prison, and there he remained for a long while. There's more to the story about the things that happened there. Let me fast forward to say through an extraordinary series of events that were orchestrated by God. Joseph wound up being number two in all of Egypt. He was second only to the Pharaoh himself in authority and in power. And there were years of abundant harvests that were coming 
that, that uh, Joseph had discerned through a dream that Pharaoh had had, followed by famine. So Joseph was entrusted, and they gathered all the food. And then the, the drought came, the famine came. And after two or three years of that famine, his brothers came from Canaan to Egypt because they knew that there was food available there. And so they showed up to buy grain. There was Joseph, number two in all of Egypt, and his staff. And his brothers came in, and he was dressed like an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian. And they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them immediately. He had to kind of clamp down on his emotions because he just, ah, oh, it was after all these years. Um, something, maybe 15 years, something like that, since he had seen them, maybe longer, 20 so he just played it cool and through an interpreter, he spoke Egyptian to his interpreter. Interpreter spoke their language to them. He said, uh, you know, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? And they told him, he said, uh, are there any others in your family? Oh yeah, we've got a dad and, you know, mom, younger brother. Oh, tell me about the younger brother. And so he quizzed and he said, what about your dad? Is he still living? And so they went and he quizzed them so much so that afterward they said, you know, he took more than casual interest in us. I wonder what's up. Well, they took their grain, they made their payment, they headed home. Joseph had their payment actually uh, put back in their sacks of grain and, bound, and tied up so that when they got some distance away, they opened the sacks of grain, they found their money. They thought, oh no, something's not right here. They went on home, they told what had happened, they ate the grain, famine continued. They said, we've got to go back and get grain. And uh, they said, oh man, we don't want to go back to meet that guy again. But they went. And when they got there, Joseph disclosed to them who he was. And they had this huge um, reconciliation. He had them dine with him. And, um, and so uh, he said, look, the famine's going to continue. Come on, come on, move everybody over here. I'll talk with Pharaoh. Pharaoh agreed. They arranged. They gave them the best part of Egypt for the raising of livestock. And so his whole family moved there. In due time, his dad, who was already elderly, uh, passed, and they took they went back and buried him where he had asked to be buried. And after all that was handled, Joseph's brothers, talking among themselves, said, "Now look, now that Dad is gone, Joseph may have a deep resentment of us, and he may take his vengeance on us." They said, I tell you what, let's make up a story that we can tell him. And so they did. So they went to Joseph and said, now, Joseph, uh, before dad died, he gave us a message that he said we were supposed to give you after he was gone. They said, this is the message. Uh, dad said, please forgive your brothers for all the evil they did against you and sinned against you. And then the brothers added, yes, and please forgive our sins. We have treated you badly. And Joseph wept. And they came and they just fell down on their faces in front of him. He said, we're your servants. And he said, you don't have to be afraid. Do you think I'm God? It's not up to me to carry out vengeance. He said, what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good to achieve this purpose and to save the lives of many people. And that line 
You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this situation and save the lives of many people. It's a classic line. And it's a principle that is crucially important for living our lives with hope and with a sense of joy because there's enough bad that happens in life. And I hope none of you have had an experience like Joseph's, but life is tough sometimes and we go through hardship. And that's really what I want to talk about today is this, this, this how God goes about taking the evil that happens in the world and turning it for good and how that can give us a great sense of hope uh, as we understand that and draw upon it. I'm actually going to direct you to the book of Romans chapter eight, where this principle is expressed in a way that's memorable. Many of you may have heard this before. Probably some of you have memorized it. And so that's a wonderful thing to do. It's Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 28, where Paul is talking about what God has done through Christ uh, for the benefit of those who trust themselves to him. The approach I'm taking today is a little bit different. I first heard this done when I was a seminary student. One of my teachers approached this particular passage in the way that I'm going to do today. And I found it so helpful. I still remember it now many years later. And I think it'll be helpful to you as well. What he did and what I will do is first talk about some misunderstandings that people have based on this. Well, they've not understood exactly what the Bible's saying. They've reached the wrong ideas. And so I want to kind of clear the deck of mistaken understandings and then come and talk about what is this actually saying. Right. So Romans 8, 28 and following. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're acquainted with this, you may be acquainted with it in its shortened form. God causes all things to work together for good. We've heard that. And with that, and taken and kind of misunderstood, I think one of the misunderstandings that is very frequent is that people say, oh, so this means that everything is good, really, if you just know how to, where to look, or if you just, you know. Everything really is good. God causes everything to work together for good, so the reasoning goes, therefore, everything is good. But in fact, that's not what this passage is saying, and the example from Joseph's life is a clear instance of that. You know, he said to his brothers, and the brothers said to him, we did you wrong. We sinned against you. And Joseph said right back to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so, you know, from a biblical perspective, as you're thinking about how does God work to redeem these terrible experiences that have happened in life, just rest assured, it does not require you to somehow try to convince yourself that evil somehow was actually really good. Is it possible that sometimes an event can have different dimensions and you only see one dimension, but there, yeah, that can happen. So I'm not writing that off entirely. So everything is completely and purely evil or completely and purely good. We, we know. But what the scripture is saying here is, man, there is evil in the world. It happens to people and God overcomes that. He transforms it 
but he doesn't ask us to somehow try to convince ourselves that the horrible things that people have done were really okay. So if you've been assaulted, if you have been manipulated and taken advantage of, if you've been lied to and lied about, if people have betrayed, betrayed your confidence, if your family has not done anything that a family ought to do for its own family members, whatever it may be, it's okay for you to say, people have done me wrong. The promise of God that he causes all things to work together for good includes everything, the good, but also the not good. God causes all things to work together. So take heart. If your life has been full of pain and you say, I don't know. It's, yes, God can work with that. And it's okay to say it was evil. And in fact, it may be evil things you've done. And you say, wow, you know, can he work with that? Yes, he can. Second misunderstanding that I think is pretty common. I put it this way, misunderstanding number two. Everything eventually works itself out for the best. Everything eventually works itself out for the best. You, had, you heard people say something like that? Well, it sort of sounds like what the Bible's saying, but that's part of the danger is that it sort of sounds right, but it's not right. To say that everything eventually works itself out, works itself out for the best, implies that there's some sort of force out there or something woven into the nature of, of creation that these things just all kind of work out. But what the Bible is saying here very clearly it's that it's not some vague kind of, you know, smoky something out there that does it. It says, God causes all things to work together for good. It is the work of Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, the one before whom we all will give an account, the one who says to us, I am your father and you can be my children if you receive me as your father. That it's the work of a personal God who knows us intimately, who cares about us by name. It's he who works all things together for good, not some vague kind of thing. And may I say to you, frankly, if you're a Christian person, I hope that you will not attribute such things to karma. Karma is a term that's borrowed from non-Christian religions to talk about a kind of impersonal force like this. The Christian view is very different and it specifies it is God who works it out. And so when we say karma, we are missing an opportunity to give God the credit that he is due. So let me just encourage you, I don't mean to pick a fight with anybody, but because oftentimes we just use the words the way we hear them used around us, but a more thoughtful way from the standpoint of Christian belief is that it's not just some principle, it's God Almighty, the personal God who knows your name, knows your address, knows what you've been through, knows what you're facing, and it's he in love who works things all together for your good, for our good. It's wonderful to have a God like that. And this reassurance in this verse is so powerful in helping us hang on and have hope and not despair and not give up. Um, God. Is, has this, and he, this is what he does. Uh, the third misunderstanding is this, that God promises to work things out 
So I get everything that I think is good. God works all things together for good, right? And so I think these things would be good. I think it'd be good if I had more money. I think if I was more, you know, smarter and better looking, did better in my school and work, I think it'd be better if, you know, you have this whole list of the good things that you can think of. And you look and say, God works all things together for good. Therefore, God's going to work to give me all these things that I think are good. Well, that would be a misunderstanding. Because the passage actually specifies the good toward which God is working all things. And you probably noticed it. But in case you didn't, let's look at it. In verse 28, I'm just going to start over there. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. All right, there's the key phrase. What is he working toward in all of these activities? And there's several key biblical terms here that I'm not gonna take time this morning to try to unpack their meaning, but please just take them, take them together. What these words mean is God is working intentionally consistently with a plan to make each of us who have committed ourselves to him to be like Jesus Christ. That's the good. God's working all things together for good. God is working all things together to make Christian people like Jesus. That's the good. Now, does he provide all these other things that are also part of God's blessing? Well, sure he does. He may uh, bless us in lots of other ways, but the core of it, the central part of it is that God is shaping us to be like the man who loved better than any man ever did, Jesus. The man who was courageous in the face of hardship and being lied about and publicly berated. And yet he's, he stood there and he spoke the truth. He didn't quiver, he didn't back down. It's that kind of guy that God is shaping us to be like. And he was kind to people who were down. He showed tenderness toward people who'd been beaten up by life. And God is shaping us to be like Jesus in that respect. And so all the way up and down, in every way that Jesus is, God says, I am working all these things that happen, all of them together for your good. That is to make you more Christ-like. And in that, of course, there's great joy to be someone who is such a delight. And of course, his intimate relationship with the Father is right at the core of all that. So it may be a surprise to you. You may have thought, well, I, 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 this, this is not really what I signed up for. I was signing up for this list over here. Oh, sorry, someone didn't coach you well enough when you were signing up, maybe. But when you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, then that really what, that, what you're signing up to is to receive the forgiveness that he has obtained for us by his death and burial and resurrection. And his life becomes our life and his priorities, our priorities. And increasingly, his character becomes our character as God works through us. So that's the goal toward which all things are working together. Might be a little bit of a surprise to you. With that, let me add a kind of a corollary if you think about some of the things that the Bible says that God wants us to have by way of character, it gives some clues to how God may help get us to that point. So, for instance, one of the admirable qualities that the Bible says Christian people 
can and should cultivate <clears throat> is the quality of being long-suffering. That is, we're able to stand in under a load, keep moving ahead, even though it's tough, that God works in us that capacity. Now, <clears throat> just between us, how do you think is the most likely way for God to teach us to be long-suffering? Like practice, you suffer and you learn to bear up under. You, you cultivate long-suffering by suffering long. Love is patient when wronged. Well, hmm, how would you learn to be loving in the face of someone wronging you? Well, probably by practice. I have some experiences. I have some experience with people wronging us and we cultivate that quality of life. So I'm saying all this to say, please do not be surprised if as God works all things together for good, he does use difficult situations, trying situations, frustrations and uh, injustice that are perpetrated on you or people you care about and uses those to shape you to be like Christ. You know, it's, it's August and... At schools across America, you know, football teams have begun or soon will begin their workouts preparing for the fall season. And, you know, uh, if the coach meets the players at the beginning of the fall practices, what's our goal? You know, usually it's some version of, hey, we want to win the conference. We want to win the championship. We want to go undefeated. We want to be the best our school has ever had. What's some version of that? Excellence. And the coach says, great. I, I support that. Let's work toward that together. But then the coach starts having them run and do push-ups and, you know, just all the exercise in the heat of August and the players are sweating and they're tired and their body will be stiff tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And if they say, hey, wait, coach, we want to win the championship, but we just don't want to do two-a-days in August. What do you expect the coach is going to say? You can't get there without going through this. And I would say to you, I think spiritually the same kind of thing is true, that God does work all things together for our good, that is making us like Jesus Christ. And he often does, he uses challenging circumstances, sometimes pain to bring us to where he wants us to be. I think that can give meaning to going through those hard times where you, can, you don't have to say that the hard time you're going through is good, but you say, God is so great that he can bring good out of my pain, my struggle, my loss. And that is a great encouragement when you're in the middle of it. To say, this is not meaningless. This is not empty pain or empty hardship that I'm going through. But that God redeems such circumstances to help me to be more compassionate toward others who go through a similar thing. Or maybe he helps us to be less judgmental of people who struggle. Because you say, wow, I didn't realize it. Boy, it's, it's not hard to wind up where you really struggle. And so however God in his wisdom chooses to do it, he uses these various circumstances in our life to shape us to be like Christ. Then the fourth of the misunderstandings I want to mention to you is that there is the misunderstanding that God promises, promises to do this for every human being. That's not the promise. Would you look with me again in detail at what he actually does say? 
Paul writing, inspired by God, to write what God wanted. Verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see how he narrows who the recipient is of this promise? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his promise, his purpose. So two qualifications there as far as who is the recipient of this. Do you love God? And have you heard God's call saying, come enter into a relationship with me of trust and love and follow the way I have for you? Those are the people to whom the scripture says, God causes all things to work together for good. If you're in that category, you say, I love God and you know, as he is my helper. When he calls me to salvation, I've said, yes, and I'm following him. Then this surely can be a reassurance to you. Now, what if you say, hmm, I'm not sure I'm in that category. Or you're thinking about somebody you know. You say, I don't, I don't think they love God. I don't think they're called according to his purpose. So what? Does God just write them off? Does God not help them at all? And say, no, actually God is really merciful. Uh, Jesus said, for instance, that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. You know, people who shake their fist at God in defiance, God will still send rain on their garden, their pasture land, their crops. He's merciful that way. And just a few pages back toward the front of your Bible from here in chapter five of this very same book, Paul wrote and he said, God demonstrated his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the character of God. That's what he's done. And so surely, no, God is predisposed to, sh to show favor toward people who don't deserve it. Kindness and mercy to us as we don't deserve it. So that's who he is. But in honesty, this particular statement, this promise of what God does, it is narrowed specifically to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So can we, could you, you know, say to God, look, I, I haven't been following you. I haven't really loved you, but boy, I really see I've made a mistake. I want to start. Can I get in on this? Well, surely, yes, God loves you and God would welcome you. The, the Bible says, God speaking to people, draw near to me, God, and I will draw near to you person. So yes, there's an opportunity for you to be part of this, but frankly, just as a matter of honesty, uh, I need to say that if you say, you know, I really don't want anything to do with God, except I do want him to work all things together for my good. That's, that's, does that strike anyone as kind of asking a lot? I want you to orchestrate all my life for my benefit, but I don't want to love you and I don't want to answer your call to follow your way. God is gracious, but he can't do things that are actual, just contradictions. Because for him to cause all things to work together for your good, to make you Christ-like is in incompatible with your decision of, I don't want to be Christ-like. And he will not crush your will to do that. Can you look to God in hope? Absolutely. 
can you presume that you can both uh, follow God and not follow God simultaneously? Well, that's tough. Now, it is interesting that this phenomenon of God bringing good out of evil, it's kind of puzzling, frankly, from a intellectual or philosophical standpoint. You say, you know, how could this be? You know, is God bringing good or are people doing evil or how? And really not in answer to that exactly, but just as illustration of that, uh, let me point you to a couple of things that the apostle Peter said in his sermons that he preached after Jesus had died, buried, been raised and taught for 40 days and then went back to heaven. In one of his sermons, which he was preaching to the Jews in Acts chapter two, Peter said, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So what Peter is saying is two things that to our ears may seem like they contradict. So he's saying God had planned this whole way of salvation that involved the death of Jesus. And you and others conspired against Jesus. You plotted to have him killed. You solicited perjury in the trial. And then you handed him over to godless men to carry out the final uh, un injustice that you had in mind. So God's planned it. He told the prophets it was coming. God has orchestrated events to bring it about. You plotted, you planned, you collaborated, you handed him over and you stood by in silence as an injustice was done. Say, so, okay, which was it? God responsible, people responsible. And the Bible says, yes. God is at work. He does his work. And we do what we do. And we can't somehow escape responsibility for our own actions by saying, well, God works everything according to his will anyway. And so therefore I'm not responsible. No, that's not the biblical view. Now, I understand that from American cultural standpoint, our belief system may tell us that those two clash. And I'm just here to report that in the Bible, they don't clash. Our culture tells us one thing, but the, the Bible says God is great enough that these can both be realities. And, you know, we could go on and we could look at some other examples. So how is it that simultaneously we are doing our own thing, perhaps in diametrical opposition to God, his will, and God is working through that anyway to bring about the good, which is the, the Christ being formed in each of us. Well, in that is the mystery. And that is our trust to say, Lord, I don't see how this is going to work out exactly, but I believe it because the, the ultimate example of that is right here, the one I've been pointing to. How is it that Jesus' death on the cross was both predetermined by God, foretold by God, orchestrated by the Father, and yet clearly people plotted against him. So the, you know, Satan wanted Jesus destroyed. And so they were doing all they could on their part to destroy Jesus, to destroy the, the work of God. And God was, you know, the Bible doesn't say this, but you, you can, you sort of wonder what Satan thought a few days later 
when he realized they'd done everything that they hoped to do and all of it had actually strengthened the clarity with which people saw how much God loves us and how God has made salvation possible for us. It's amazing. Now, so this promise is not for everybody, but it could be, could be. If you say, you know, I'm far from God and I'm not following him, but you, you are welcome to return. It's interesting in the second of those sermons that Peter preached, after laying out essentially the same kind of thing I've already said, God was at work orchestrating events. People were doing their own thing purposefully, intentionally. Then he says, Peter, now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. <clears throat> but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, God has thus fulfilled. And then here's the clincher. Peter says, therefore, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In ancient times, and I think it's true exactly the same way today, <clears throat> the call is not to struggle with how God can bring good out of evil. Don't, don't labor intellectually about that when what's really needed is much more pointed than what the Bible says here. While you're trying to figure all that out, repent, turn from the sins, your willful, self-guided way, and instead follow Christ. Turn yourself to him, hand yourself over, say, yes, I know I don't have anything that merits your love. I know that it's a gift through and through, and I embrace that. And then experience the refreshing, the life that is really life that Jesus offers to those who come this way. This is the offer that scripture makes. God says he will work to cause all things to come together for good, that is being like Jesus, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that is what we invite you to today.